You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. On this episode, you're going to be hearing from Jonathan Melville, who you've heard before on the show. He wrote the book Seeking Perfection, all about tremors. He is back with a new book called A Kind of Magic, The Making of the Original Highlander. Let's go ahead and play that and be sure to pick up a copy. It is fantastic. Jonathan Melville, why the Highlander? Why did you go from writing about tremors to writing about the Highlander? There's a few different reasons. I enjoyed writing about Tremors, first of all. Um, that book was my first attempt at a book, and I didn't know that I could write a book. So it was kind of me uh, just experimenting, really, and seeing if it, if it worked. And it seemed to work. People seemed to enjoy it. And, and as I say, I enjoyed writing it. So I was thinking, once I finished that book in 2015, uh, part of me was thinking, I've had enough of writing books and taking years to do it. And part of me was thinking actually what's next so when, when you're writing a book i suppose or, or for me anyway if, you, if you're going to write a book on on a film or a tv show you kind of want to know either that nobody else has done it before or if it has been done it's maybe um you know you can improve it in some way and with highlander there was another book out which is actually a great book but it only covers the first film in about 11 pages and all the other films and the tv series gets a bit more detail so i kind of thought well, I would like to know more about the first film. And so I started just emailing some people, obviously the obvious people like um, Christopher Lambert and Sean Connery and um, Clancy Brown, e emailing their agents to see if they were interested in, in, in talking about this film. And nobody really got back to me. And this was in kind of early 2016. And then because I live in Edinburgh in Scotland, we have a, a film festival here. And 2016 was the 30th anniversary of Highlander. And an email just dropped into my inbox, as I, I think I mentioned in the book, um, announcing that they were going to celebrate Highlander. And they were inviting Clancy Brown over to, to celebrate 30 years of Highlander. So uh, I just couldn't, couldn't believe my luck, really. And I thought, well, if I can get – because Clancy Brown is – I don't know if you know, but him and, and Highlander, has they've not really got on too well over the years. He kind of distanced himself from the world of Highlander. So to get him for any amount of time talking about that film was going to be a bit of a coup. Uh, so, so basically the, the sort of sh shortish version, I suppose, is to say he almost landed on my doorstep and he would have, should have been the most difficult person to get an interview with. And I got him first. And so I thought, well, this is a sign, I think. So I carried on from there. And I think once I started emailing people to say, can I speak to you? I've already spoken to Clancy Brown. It starts a bit of a chain reaction and people think, oh, well, if Clancy's doing it, then maybe I should do it. And, and so it kind of built up from there. And just the one other thing to say is I, I love Highlander. Uh, you know, I couldn't do these things if I didn't enjoy what I'm writing about. So I first saw the film in 1994, I think it was, and it stuck with me since then. So, so kind of that combination of really enjoying the film and yeah, Clancy Brown just landing in Edinburgh for, for a surprise visit. Does Highlander have a special place for you or for the people of Scotland since it is set partially in Scotland? I think so. I try and address that a little bit in the introduction to the book, where I mention that Scotland is a very small country. 
and we don't have a film industry or or a TV industry here. Um, we produce some some films and and some TV shows, but really you couldn't try and get a job in that industry here and succeed for very long. So any time a film is made here or is set here, I would say we, uh, or certainly I, and I think a, f- a few other people as well. I think we kind of take it to our hearts a little bit and think, oh well, somebody else has tried to make a film here, so let's try and support it. And um, an Islander is just one of those films that has so many different things going for it. it. Has Sean Connery, of course, who is probably Scotland's most famous actor. I think it would be difficult to, to argue with that. Um, even though he has been retired for many years, I think he's probably still the most famous actor. Maybe Ewan McGregor is, is sort of catching up with him these days, or or even Gerard Butler. <laughs> a, bit of a, a bit of a difference there. But uh, so, yeah, so that's Sean, and of course, set in the Highlands. And, and uh, so, yeah, so I think there's a special place, and I think we can laugh at ourselves as well. Once again, when people make films here, if they're not from Scotland, and, and the guys who made Highlander were not Scottish, they were American producers, although it was mainly a British crew, when they try it and they get an actor or actors to put on Scottish accents, we, we kind of have a laugh at them a little bit and uh, and judge them a little bit as well, but in a, in, a, in a fun way, I think. Of course, you've got Mel Gibson's Scottish accent, which is actually not that bad. So, no, I think there is definitely a, a little thing where we look at it and say, yeah, that's that's our film, even though it is made by American producers. I know down in New Zealand they do Hobbit tours. Do they do Highlander tours in Scotland? No, we're quite bad at the, this tourism thing. I mean, the Visit Scotland, our, our tourist board, uh, does appreciate that, that set jetting, I think it's called, is quite a big thing. And people do come here to see where things are filmed. But you have to do a lot of work yourself. I mean, some of the locations I visited uh, while writing the book, uh, one of them, which is the famous beach that's in the, the scene where Sean Connery and Christopher Lambert run down the beach, that beach is very difficult to find. And in fact, I went to it and I, I got the wrong beach the first time. And I thought, because there's no signs, there's nothing to tell you you're there. I based it off memory and thinking, this looks a lot like the beach. And it turned out I got the wrong one. So no, I think we could do a lot better with, with having Highlander tours or James Bond tours. James Bond's been filmed here a few times. You know, we need to, we need to do better at that, I think. I think I just smelled a brand new industry for you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I have I have done a little I've done a few little tours. I remember a few years ago I did a when Brave was coming out. Pixar, I think. Is it Pixar or Disney? Maybe it's Disney. Uh, and that came out and, and bizarrely someone did ask me to go on the Brave tour, even though it's an animated film, but they producers and the directors the director did come over and, and scout scotland so you could actually go and see where locations were based based on but no it would be, it would be fun wouldn't that be a fun job to just go around scotland as a, as a sort of tour guide i think so you managed to get the hardest interview out of the way first who were some of the other people that you said i really have to talk to these folks well i really wanted of course christopher lambert i thought i've got to have him got to have russell Mulcahy. Uh, and I think when I was, I can't quite remember when your episode about Highlander came out, but I remember hearing it and thinking, I'm a bit jealous because I think, I don't think I'd got Russell at that point. Uh, and you got Gregory Wyden. And I, I thought, well, I'd love to speak to Gregory as well. So, you know, those were the kind of key people, of course, Roxanne Hart and BT Edney. So the, the main guys I wanted. And I did admittedly think they would be easier to get than, than they were. Russell Mulcahy is a difficult guy to pin down, lovely guy. I'm really happy to talk about the film. 
but he's still got a career. He's still directing things, which is brilliant. But it's not brilliant when you're trying to track people down, as I'm sure you you know very well. You know, Russell, I think I spoke to Russell the first time he was in a car in South Africa, I think, in the back of a car, and it was on his mobile phone, and he was going to the airport. And I said to him, you know, I'd love to speak to you about Highlander. And he said, oh, yeah, you know, we'll sort that out. We'll sort it out. And I think it took another year, maybe, to get him again on the phone. And, uh, and Christopher as well. I almost interviewed him in 2016 as well as Clancy the week after the Edinburgh screening and the, the interview that I did with him in Edinburgh. Um, there was going to be a screening in London and Christopher was there. And so I did go down to try and interview Christopher. But sadly, he had a, there was an illness in his family. And so he had to go off and speak to someone on the phone for a few hours. So that again, that was summer 2016. And I think it took until Christmas 2017 to speak to him on the phone. So, uh, yeah, I was in it for the long, the long haul with a lot of these guys. And I also wanted to speak to the writers as well as well as Gregory Wyden. I wanted to speak to Peter Bellwood and Larry Ferguson, who wrote the script that uh, became the Highlander that we know. Uh, and those guys were very difficult to get hold of. Again, I'm speaking to you and, and I'm sure you must. I'd love to hear your stories, which can attract people down. But for me, it was a case of, of doing a bit of detective work and, and they, they're not on the Internet. So I had to I think for one of them, I, I discovered that they'd done a talk at a university sorry, on a, on a blog post on a university website. And so I emailed the person that ran the website and, and said, can you remember their email address? And it took, it took a while. And then someone else that went, they, they live in a, in a little village somewhere in America, a little town. And I think they'd done a talk at a local school. So I got in touch with the school. <laughs> so slightly stalkerish and slightly investigative journalist Stuff. I don't really know what you'd call it, but I got there and I got the guys, you know, so that's it worked out in the end. And then, you know, other people, I spoke to about 60 people, which is kind of a crazy amount. And I kind of realized that in a way it's, it meant the book took longer to appear because it took me longer to find people and, and type up the interviews and, and work out where to put all the, the quotes and things. I hope it adds more to it. And, and there is a lot of information in this book. And I think people maybe need to read it a few times actually to, to pick it all up because there's maybe a lot coming at you. So yeah, those were the main people as well as just some of the people who you wouldn't have heard of. So there's a chap called Campbell Muirhead who I didn't know I wanted to speak to because I'd never really heard of him. But somebody on Twitter got in touch and said, I know someone who was the, the stand-in for Christopher Lambert in the Scotland scenes. Would you like to speak to him? Uh, and then someone else got in touch again, I think via Twitter to say that they had been an extra in the battle sequence in Glencoe. Would I like to speak to them? Plus they had photos that they took in 1985 on the set. Did I want to see them? So things like that, as I say, people that I didn't know I wanted to speak to turned out to be some of the most interesting. So it's been a fascinating, fascinating thing. The storyboard artist that you interviewed, he seemed to have so many amazing stories of just the behind the scenes before they even started rolling the camera. That's right. I think that's Joe, Joe Hader. Yeah, he was over from Canada working in London and kind of a bit green, a bit new to the industry, I think. Uh, and yeah, just his stories of, of being in the production office when Sean Connery came in and, and all these stories about the people that he he saw in being doing rehearsals that, that that information is just not 
I've never read this stuff before. So it was fascinating. And yeah, and then I think he tells stories as well about being quite new to storyboarding as well. And and he thought if you if uh, if if something wasn't being used in the film, you could just sort of score it out or delete it or, or um, you know remove it. But then, of course, one of the think the assistant directors came to him and said, "Well, no, you doing that affects the way that we build things, so you're messing up what we do." So no, it's, it was. I, I hope there's a there's sort of an interesting insight into filmmaking, really, and just behind the scenes of filmmaking in general, rather than just if you're just a Highlander fan. I mean, I think you'll get a lot out of it, but. I also hope if you're a film fan in general, you'll learn things about the the detail that goes into making a film. 100%. This book just goes into it. I was so impressed by just the level of depth, the talking about the fight coordinators and the sword fighting and all that. It was just wonderful. And I had no idea that Catherine Mary Stewart was almost Heather in the film. Yeah, they met her. I think she came over to I didn't get to speak to her, sadly. I did reach out to her. Not, I think I just tried once. Uh, I, I try not to hassle people too much, but I think she did actually come over and then, uh, because they, they talk about her being a really nice person, a really nice actor to deal with. And then I think her visa fell through. There's some sort of visa issues. And so she didn't get to make it, but yeah, she, she was very close to being in the film. What were some of the more, most surprising things you found out while you're doing your research? The first thing that is probably most people, most fans, wouldn't find surprising, but I did, was that the film was British. I always, when I, when I first saw it at the cinema, I just watched it as a film. You know, I was just a, a film fan watching this film, and I didn't pay attention to the fact that it was made by Thorne EMI, which was a British uh, company who funded it at 100%, and it was distributed in the US by 20th Century Fox. So I didn't really realize that, and I thought for some reason it was an American film, just because it kind of looks like one really doesn't it it's a, it has that american action film style to it so yeah at the most basic level that was a surprise right at the start i mean there were things in the in the film that that happened you, you, because i think russell mulcahy is such a, a creative and and visionary kind of director his style is is so unique that he does things that i think people don't understand why he's doing them at the time he has an idea for a scene, what he wants it to look like and what he wants to happen. And bringing people along with him, I think, was always a bit of a problem. People would be like, why are you doing that? Why is it raining in this scene when it's indoors? Uh, why is the water pouring down from, from here? So, And there's one bit in the film which people will probably remember. Uh, it's right at the start. There's a fight sequence uh, with Connor and Facile. And Facile starts backflipping in the, in the car park. And I've watched that film many times and you just think, why is someone, why does he start to backflip and then he stops and it's never referenced again. So things like speaking to one of the stunt men, Andy Bradford, him mentioning in passing that his friend was the guy that came in and did the backflips. That was a surprise to me because in the, in the end credits and on IMDb, it doesn't mention that this chap, um, Vincent, uh, Vincent Ginger Keen. Ginger Keen is his name. It doesn't mention him at all. No one's quite sure why, but we sort of think that maybe it's because the stunt arranger played Facile, and maybe he didn't want people to know that he had his own stunt double for that sequence. So, you know, there's little things like that, which, although it's not a radically exciting thing to learn, it's just a nice little surprise. And then I spoke to Ginger Keen on the phone, and he told me, 
yeah, well, I was I wasn't meant to be doing it, and I bumped into this stunt guy who had injured his arm, I think, and he said, "Do you want to do it?" So I went down and I filmed it, and it took a day. So there's just all these little stories that built up into a bigger thing, uh, and I suppose just one more thing, maybe that was that was kind of surprising or shocking was about the battle sequence and and how because there were hundreds and hundreds of extras of Scotsmen that were were hired to become these Highlanders, these big hairy Highlanders in their kilts and uh, and beards and things. And the producers, I suppose like a lot of producers, they were they were very careful with the money. They had to it wasn't a huge budget in the film and they did want to be careful. They were careful where that money was spent. But at one point they apparently did say they didn't want to spend money on breakfast for the for the um, extras. So you had maybe two or three hundred extras or maybe more, four hundred extras who potentially weren't going to get fed. And that then kicked off a bit of a, a bit of a rebellion, really, amongst the, the cast and the crew. We were saying, you've got to feed these guys. You know, without them, you don't have a scene. You don't have a sequence. And we're going to have to try and get more people. So I think hearing about that and then just there's little stories around that, what happened and what some of the crew were saying. And, and one of them was saying, you know, we threatened to get Sean Connery involved and say, you realize they don't want to pay them, uh, uh, feed the extras. What are you going to do about it? Um, so I, I don't know. It was just that was another little unusual story, which I'd never heard before. Um, so there's a lot. There's a lot of that in there. Other than the interviews, what were some of your primary sources for research? The interviews I did were the main ones, but yes, I went down to London. Um, as I say, I live in Scotland, but I went down to London a couple of years ago. I went to the BFI library uh, on the South Bank in London and spent a few hours going through various magazines, archive magazines and film magazines and Screen International and I think Sight and Sound and Variety and all these all these kind of trade papers really trying to work out what was being said at the time in 1985 or 86. Those were a key part. Plus, I used um, some production notes that were written at the time and published, at, I suppose, in 1986 when the film was coming out. There were quite a lot of little mini interviews that they did with Sean Connery and the, the cast and the crew. Uh, and also another one that is just um, the Internet Archive. So going on there and looking for Highlander. So Starburst magazine, the UK magazine, Starlog magazine. Uh, so many interviews in Starlog that took place. Uh, and once in a while I would read something and there's an there's a, um, issue of Starlog, I think from 1986, where the, the writer, uh, the journalist went on set in London and talks about a scene where some of the, one of the stunt performers kind of misses his mark when he's, I think, swinging on the on the silver cup scene, silver cup building, and it was fascinating because I'd spoken then, thirty years later, to that stunt performer who told me that story before I read it in the magazine. So it was fascinating to be able to see two different angles of the same thing happening. You know, one from thirty years ago and one from the the point of view of today. But archive, the Internet Archive is a fantastic resource for old old magazines and books. I'm always fascinated by that Rashomon effect where you have two different stories or three or four that all differ in very key ways. And I'm curious if you ran into that as far as people contradicting each other. Yeah, it's funny you ask that because there's one thing that Clancy told me was uh, around was about the costume and his costume in the 1980s is that kind of punk not biker exactly but that kind of leather leather gear and the and so he told me 
I did ask him about what it was like. He was 25 at the time. So he was this young American actor that was in London. Uh, and he was, I don't want to say inexperienced because he had been in films up to that point and, and, I, and I think some theatre as well. So he, he, he was experienced, but he was still, he was a young guy. So I think there was a, a situation where he wasn't happy with that costume. He talks about how it was filmed in a church in London. I think it was Kilburn, Kilburn Church. And he arrived on set and the costume was there and he put it on. And it had these kind of bits hanging off it, these kind of loops and hoops and um, maybe little little bits that maybe jangled and made a noise. And he says that he started taking that apart. And he said to me, I think he said to me, or maybe I read it, but he, he talked about how he thought that maybe that would be a problem for the sound department and maybe the, the sort of clanking and, and the, the jingling would, would be caught on, on microphone. So he started taking it apart. And then he started, and then he, but then he said that the costume designer who, who designed this, Jim Aitchison, he started shouting at him and they had a bit of a, a to-do on set because Jim Aitchison was saying, what are you doing? I designed this. You're now taking it apart. Why are you doing that? That was really interesting hearing Clancy being quite honest and open about, you know, he got it wrong. He admitted he got it wrong. And he said, I, sh- I shouldn't have done that because it wasn't my place to do that. But also I wanted to hear from another point of view. So I did speak to Jim Aitchison over the, over the phone about that story. And he remembered it very, in a similar way. Um, he was quite hurt by it at the time. And he, and he it kind of has stuck with him ever since. And I think he's still... Yeah, he's not he's not happy about it, even all these years later, which is fascinating. Um, but that kind of thing is what I wanted to do. If there was a story that someone said was maybe that maybe was a bit negative, this was meant to be a positive book. It was meant to be a, a celebration of the film, just like Tremors. If someone wanted to say something that was honest and it was kind of negative about some one individual, it is it's a difficult situation that because it's then trying to work out. First of all, is this right? Does the memory cheat? Are they remembering this right? Or do they maybe have a bit of a grudge for whatever reason? Uh, so that was that's difficult. I think it was a couple of times I left a couple of things out because maybe there were talking about money situations that I couldn't really verify, you know, to do with being paid or, or, or things that either maybe wouldn't keep the story flowing very well or just I thought, oh, I don't know if this is, doesn't feel quite right to be putting this in the book all these years later. From that point of view, I suppose the, the Rashomon thing, uh, there was one situation, I, su- I think, on the, the roof of Silver Cup. And so that was where they filmed, of course, people will know the, the final battle, the f- final sword fight on the, on the roof of Silver Cup. And they filmed some of that in London and some of it in New York. But the New York segment, there was a situation where the the mattress that they used for the actor to jump onto, or the stunt person, um, Christopher Lambert, apparently jumped onto this from a great height and had his sword still with him and caused a rip in the mattress. And so various people kind of had different stories about that and said, yeah, this is definitely what happened. He, he damaged it. And someone said, I think he destroyed it. And someone else said he just caused a rip in it. And Christopher Lambert said it didn't happen like that at all. And it was all fine. But then I managed to find the, the actual production paperwork that said, yes, Christopher Lambert did cause a, <laughs> a, a tear in the, in the mattress. So it doesn't sound like he destroyed it, but I think it cost some money to fix. But that was an interesting situation. Just And I put all that in the book and try and say, 
this person thought this, this person thought that, Lambert thought this, that this is what it says on in print. Um, so there's a bit of that going on, but but overall, I think people's memories are remarkable. Actually, I think after all these, I can't remember what I did this morning, <laughs> you know, and people are remembering what happened 35 years ago. So generally, I think it went fine. Although sometimes I did just have to maybe take a a, a sort of executive decision about the timeline. So um, I'll, I don't know if you want to hear this, but the, there was one point in the film where. The opening sequence where they have the in, in Madison Square Garden in the film was a wrestling match. Is a wrestling match, and now that's what's in the film. Originally, it was meant to be a hockey match, and so one of the people I spoke to said that the decision to change it from a hockey match to a wrestling match took place while they were filming in New York, and they couldn't get permission. Whereas, and I think that's written down in a few places as well. But actually, if you think about it, well. When I read some memos from the writers going back a few months earlier, they talk about being told that they had to set it in as a make a wrestling match. So it doesn't. So things don't tie up exactly nicely time wise, because if they had to write that script two months before they got to New York, then they knew it was going to be a wrestling match. So if someone says, you know, so so the, the different points of view. So I then had to, luckily, Alan Cameron, who was a production designer in an archive interview, he talked about that when he went to New York with Russell Mulcahy, they, they decided at the time it was going to be a wrestling match. So I kind of used Alan Cameron's quote to make me state in the book, really, that it was actually decided in advance. So that's kind of a long-winded way of saying, yes, there were two different different memories. I took a decision to make it, you know, I, I stated one thing the way it happened, I hope I'm right. Uh, and I think, unfortunately, of course, or maybe fortunately, people might get in touch with me and say, no, no, it definitely happened in New York. In which case, I'll, I can change things if, if we have a, another print, print run. But, but that's just the thing where you sometimes just have to make that decision, don't you, and say, okay, I think actually it was probably here rather than here. The book is called A Kind of Magic, making of the original Highlander, which immediately calls to mind the Queen song. And I'm curious, how did Queen get involved in the production? Because I think that also gives this film legs to carry it over so many years. It's a great film in itself, but then the Queen score just adds so much to it. So first of all, the title, I was a little bit dubious about calling it a kind of magic because I thought, well, that is the name of a, of a Queen album. So I thought people might, Queen fans might say to me, how dare you do that? But actually the term, the words, a kind of magic, that phrase was in the script very early on. So Queen actually took it from the script. So my my version of the story is I took it from the script as well. So nothing to do with Queen at all. It's a coincidence. But they got involved really because um, Russell Mackay. Well, there's a couple of different <laughs> – you're talking about Rashomon there and asking about Rashomon effect. There are a couple of different theories as to how this happened. But in the book, I do state that I spoke to Derek Power, who was the music supervisor for the film, who did speak about wanting to try and get uh, Pink Floyd involved originally, and uh, David Gilmore. So he kind of, I think, says it was kind of his idea. You speak to Russell, and he sort of says it was his idea. So I think it was probably, a, let's just say it was a combination of ideas, the, the idea for for. Queen came up in conversation, let's say, to be fair to everybody. But yes, Russell really invited the, the guys from Queen in to, to watch some, some clips of the film, some uh, unedited sequences of the, of the movie. And 
apparently at the time they said, well, I say apparently, I mean, I did speak to Brian and Roger, Brian May and Roger Taylor. So yes, they said that they watched it and they loved it. And, and Freddie Mercury read the script and said it was his favorite, the best script he'd ever read. And each member of the, the, the band found something else in the film that they liked or, or maybe were attracted to or that resonated with them. So for Brian, it was the sequence of Connor and Heather together, uh, the sort of montage sequence where they're t- together. She's aging. And then, of course, she, spoiler if anyone's not seen it, she, she passes away in the film. But that is a beautiful sequence and I think really, really helped by the music, which really just makes it a, a really perfect little moment. So, so yeah, they, they saw the scene, the, the sequences and thought, yeah, let's make this film. Let's, let's, sorry, let's do the music. Uh, and then went off and wrote it. And uh, yeah, I was so delighted I got to speak to Queen as well, who were also on my list to try and speak to right at the start of this project. And I just didn't think I would get there because they're just so busy. And I did approach them quite a number of times and I emailed them, I emailed their agent or their manager, I suppose it is, Jim Beach. And every time I emailed, he would email back and say, yeah, you know, I'd, I'd like you to be able to speak to them, but they're on tour. Maybe try again in six months. And I would, and I would try again in six months. And he would say, yeah, they're still on tour. Maybe try again in another six months. Uh, and it took me probably four years, at least three years to get them. And the only reason I got them was because of the, this pandemic, the COVID pandemic, because they were grounded and they were, they were in London. And I noticed on social media that they were doing lots of Instagram videos about being stuck in the house. And I thought, well, if they're not doing much just now, maybe they would take 20 minutes to speak to me. And I emailed again, and I think I was speaking to them within a week of that happening. So the pandemic, as terrible as it is, I can't really deny that it helped me, and I think made the book better. You must have talked to Brian before he had his gardening accident. I did, yeah. Yeah, when I saw that, I was like, oh, my word. The two of them, Brian and Roger, I spoke to them separately, but they were very... Just so happy to talk. I mean, you, you you know just by watching Brian do any sort of interview or uh, even just on his Instagram videos, he's such a – he really thinks about what he's saying and is genuine, such a soft-spoken man. And it was just really nice to be able to hear him talk about um, writing the music and writing the words to the music and working with Michael Kamen. Of course, the, who, who composed the film and, and sadly died a few years back. I really wanted to try and do justice to Michael Kamen if I could, uh, without, of course, having his input. So I thought it was really nice what Brian said about him and, and the, the fact that they were friends, they became friends, and um, just the way they collaborated. And, and uh, it was interesting. I spoke to some, a Queen podcast a few weeks ago and wanted to know from them what they found interesting about the Queen interview with, with Brian. And they said they found it fascinating that Brian admitted he was a bit nervous about working with an orchestra because I think the type of music, I've not listened to every Queen album. I love Queen, but I'm not, I'm not as big a fan as, as a lot of people. So they said something about, um, you know, there's not, not much orchestral music on their albums and they don't do much of that area. And they said it kind of made a bit of sense now. The fact that he's saying he, 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 uh, he looks, almost looks up to to orchestras you know he, he he's in awe of what they do which i thought was really interesting this guy who's who's obviously one of the world's most famous uh guitarists is actually 
nervous being in the same room as uh, as, as an orchestra. So I think that was fascinating. Um, but no, I'm really, really glad I got them, and I and I hope I did justice again to uh, Michael. Michael came, and I hope I did. What has been the reaction to the book? Because this has been out for a little while in the UK, and it's not going to be out in the uh, states until I think November 30th. Yeah, I mean, it's actually today is the as we're recording this, it's the 17th of October, so it's been out I think a month today, uh, and it's really taken me by surprise that how popular it's been. Obviously, you hope that people are going to want to buy this and read it. Uh, I don't think it's telling tales. I think my publisher would mind me saying it sold out its first print run already. So we're on a second print run, he's also getting copies printed in the US. We, I think, again, this is, I don't think it's top secret information, but it's it's published in the UK. It's a UK publisher based here in Edinburgh, actually, in Scotland. A small publisher, and they do a lot of books around sports. And and my publisher uh, Pete, he is uh, he he loves films, he loves the eighties, and so he wanted he's he's done a James Bond book, and I want to do more. But yeah, so the book is I think taken in by surprise the success, um, which I'm not trying to blow my own trumpet or anything. But you, you, it 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 is the fans have been amazing. I suppose that's the thing to say. The fans have been really embraced this and been so positive and um, and just kind and, and said nice things and um, I think whenever you put something out there and I, I, I think you're possibly the same whenever you put something out there that is based on something that somebody loves you always have that there's that risk that they're going to see the things that are wrong of course you know because you, you say something wrong you're in my case of course I write something and say something took place on this date or this actor did this, and it was another actor. So I was always wary that someone was going to say, no, 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 no. You've got that completely wrong, and this actually is the, is the truth. Now, that might still happen, but no, it hasn't happened yet, and I'm very happy about that. And the fans are just saying, this is brilliant. You're making, uh, you know, you're adding another layer to my enjoyment of the film now. And that was the point of the book. That was the whole point, was to try and celebrate the film and make people see something new in it and, and understand it better. So, yeah, I was going to say there that the publisher is now having some printed in the the US. And I think we thought we could get away with they're, – they're actually on a ship somewhere at the moment coming across to America, <laughs> the copies for the US. and but, but now we're having to get more printed over there because it's been so popular. So this it's brilliant. It's, it's done really well. So when is the book about the quickening going to be out? Oh, yeah. You're, the, you're not the first person to ask me that either. <laughs> um, I never thought of writing a book on Highlander 2. I mean, it – in in this book, I do have a chapter about the sequels, and it's just one chapter that has all the sequels in this one chapter. And I thought that was fine, that was enough. But no, you, a few people have now said, when are you writing that book? In fact, one of the reviews of the book said, yeah, this book's fine, but I'd love to read a book about Hilder too, even more. So, which is mm, nice, nice of him to say. But um, I don't know, I don't know. I, it might happen. I just don't, I mean, Highlander is just that one of those odds it's it's a it's a favorite film of course for a lot of people it's meant there's a better way of saying that i think it's many people's favorite film highlander 2 i don't think you can say that so well so i have a, I, I worry a little bit that i would be writing it as uh, just as these days we have this thing this hate watching where we watch stuff that we we don't like or or hate listen i suppose maybe we do that as well with things we don't like i, I don't want to hate write if that's a thing, you know, I wouldn't want to be writing something just so that I could pick holes in it and say this is where it went wrong. I, I, admittedly, there is something challenging for someone to to write about something that was a total disaster. 
but I don't know. I don't know if I should. I'm not sure. I probably would, just because it is such a fascinating disaster. I know. I mean, I watched it recently, and uh, yeah, I watched the Renegade cut, and uh, oh yeah, so I mean, it looks many amazing. Cuts. Yeah, absolutely. That's the other thing. But I mean, it does look amazing. I think Russell Mulcahy did a fantastic job on it, and some of the sequences, the the kind of um, the sequence where they have the two. I don't. I don't even know the names of the characters, but the the two guys that come from the future or the past. Again, which which is it? I don't know. And and fly at, at Connor, and Connor's on the sort of hoverboard thing. You know, it looks great. It makes no sense, but it looks great. Uh, and then, but then you get into the story, and it just falls apart. I think so. Actually, when I spoke to Russell Mackay, I said something about Highlander Two, and he said, "He said we don't talk about Highlander Two, and that was all he said." <laughs> so, but if someone wants to, to pay me lots and lots and lots of money, then I would consider it. But that's that's the way in the future, I think. This has been a very busy time of the year for you. You've got your new book coming out, and then you were also just in a. I don't know if this was a DVD extra or what it was, but the Tremors Making Perfection, which is luckily available out on YouTube officially, and it's not a bootleg. It was so nice to see you talking about Tremors after having read your book and had you on the Tremors podcast. Yeah, it was it was great. I mean, I got contacted last year, so probably September 2019, I think it was, by Universal um, Studios, who wanted to do this documentary. And they invited me down to London to film probably for about an hour, an hour and a half or something to talk about Tremors. And originally it was just going to be on YouTube. But when they started to tell me about the people they were interviewing, they were they had plans to speak to Kevin Bacon and the creators and the director and some of the other actors. Uh, they talked about it being a half-hour documentary, and I thought, that's this is a feature length. I don't know why you're doing half an hour. Uh, so I did my interview back then. And then as time has gone on, just different things have happened. And, and it turned out that Arrow Films are bringing out the film with, I think, Ron Underwood, the director, is overseeing it, plus um, Alexander Grusinski, I think I pronounced that right, is uh, the director of photography, and I think he's overseeing it as well. So, yeah, this, doc- this documentary is now on the Blu-ray as well on YouTube. And I know they filmed around about 24 hours' worth of material for YouTube. And that's not just they fill 24 hours and they're going to whittle it down. I believe they're going to try and use all that, most of that footage. So just yesterday, as we're recording this, they released an hour and 18 minute interview with SS Wilson, one of the the co-creators. And I think there's probably another hour's worth with Brent Maddock. And I recorded over an hour. So I think they're all going to be on YouTube and a bundle of them will be on Blu-ray. So it's a, for Tremors fans, this is a, a brilliant year. It's the 30th anniversary. So I'm so glad that this is happening. Um, and I recorded a commentary as well, the first time I've done that, um, which is quite nerve-wracking. It's like the book, you know, if you've never done it before, you, you're you're nervous and you think, can I can I do this? Uh, and I would say that to anyone who's listening who who is thinking about creating anything, podcast, book, anything, just have a go. Don't don't keep putting it off because I do that. I've done that in the past, and I probably still do. I think I've never written a script or. Um, done whatever I can't I probably can't do that and then I have a go at it and it works out so that's kind of my I try and make that my philosophy a bit more these days is to 
don't tell yourself you can't do something. You'll just have a go and see if you can. So yeah, the commentary has been been recorded, which was done just as lockdown was sort of ending here in Edinburgh in a little recording studio. Uh, and then I've also written a little booklet or, or a couple of uh, an article for the booklet as well. Yeah, it's been great. I'm so I'm so honoured really that they asked me to be part of this this box set. Since you were on the Tremors podcast, I think two new movies have come out, at least two. And I'm curious, do you have plans of going back to Seeking Perfection and uh, doing a second version of that? Well, I don't know. I mean, as I keep, I keep saying this as, as we record this, because this will come out in a few weeks' time, I think. But um, Tremors 7 is due out in October twenty. Uh, 20- 20. So yes, in the next few weeks, it's actually coming out. It's called Tremors Shrieker Island. And uh, so that's the third film that's been released since I wrote my book. Uh, and I suspect there'll be more. Plus, of course, there was a, well, I say of course, but there was a Tremors pilot that was made with Kevin Bacon, which didn't ever get brought, it was never broadcast. Um, and I don't think they ever finished um, making it, actually. I think some of the special effects are not finished. In fact, one of your your guests on many episodes, um, Vincenzo Natale, he he directed it. No, at the moment, I'm not planning to revisit. Partly because, I don't know how quite to say this, but the new sequels are not quite for me. Um, maybe I should be more forthright in what I'm saying, but it's the, the, I can see some benefits. I mean, the fact that Michael Gross has come back is great. Uh, I love Michael Gross as Burt Gummer, and it's great that he's come back. But at the same time, the the creators of the series were not asked back, or I think they were asked back, but they were told you can't have any creative input to these films whatsoever. Um, we're just going to make them, and you can just sort of have your name on them. And they said no to that, and so it really shows in the films that they're not the same as they used to be. And much as uh, you know, I'm all for things moving forward and 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 uh, like the the monsters in the films evolution has to happen and things do have to evolve and move forward but i don't know i just don't think they're tremors and the humor is gone that i liked and i think a lot of fans liked uh, and i do think i do i do get to talk about them or write about them in this booklet and the, the the arrow box set so i do talk about them a little bit but i just don't know once again a bit like like highlander 2 would I be writing it for the right reasons? I know people want to read about them, but personally, I think I might just be not as as enthusiastic as I was with the first four Tremors films. Um, so we'll see. Maybe maybe at some point it'll happen. But but now I've said this, if anyone hears this and then sees me writing it, they'll be like, well, what changed? You, you said you didn't like them. Why are you doing this now? So yeah, we'll leave it for the moment and, and see what happens. So I know that you're busy with a lot of events around tremors now and around uh, highlander but i'm curious what are you working on next so over the last few years i've had lots of ideas for books uh, and a lot of time it, it it took me four years to do this this highlander book which is probably too long so as in i would like to do them quicker i suppose is the point i'm making but i have had lots of other ideas and rather than just uh, I do have a, a, a document as this sort of book and this book and this book and this book. And realistically, time is, is against me because I don't have enough hours in the day. But I have been doing some interviews with people who work with Jim Henson. I love Henson. I love The Muppets. I love Labyrinth and all these sorts of things. So 
I've not mentioned this anywhere else, I don't think. So this is the first time I've mentioned this, but I have worked, I've been interviewing quite a few people who, who worked with Jim uh, just to hear what it was like being in his presence and what it was like being part of his team. Because we talk about, and many people I've spoken to have called him a genius, which is an easy term to throw about, I think. But with Jim Henson, I think it's kind of apt. I think it's fair to say he was a visionary, certainly. So, yeah, I thought, let's speak to people who work with him. So that's been happening. And that book, I think, will come out, I'm hoping, in maybe February or March 2021. But it'll just be me self-publishing it. Um, I haven't put it to any publisher, just because I think it's a smaller book. Um, I don't want to charge too much for it. It's just going to be kind of um, maybe self, self-published through Amazon. So that's one thing. And, um, and also, I love old action series from the sort of 70s and 80s and 90s, so like the A-Team and... Um, Stephen J. Cannell stuff and um, Glenn Larson and all these sorts of guys. So I've been interviewing people who worked on some of those projects just over the last couple of years. Uh, and the idea is to publish those as just transcripts again, like the Jim Henson one. It's tra- transcripts of the interviews. Uh, and then just release maybe 10 of them in a book. And if people like it, maybe I could do another volume of them. So there you go. That's my plans. I've not told anyone about those yet. But um, if people like Jim Henson or 80s action series, then... I should have some things coming soon. <laughs> Book-wise, like these, it's not that those are not proper books, but they're kind of, you know, shorter books. Um, when it comes to a, a, another longer, I mean, the Highlander book is about three hundred and twenty pages. As for that, I'm still working on that. To be honest, I'm speaking to the publisher and my agent about some ideas. Yeah, we'll see. I'm, I'm hoping we can do something that'll be out in a couple of years' time. Fingers crossed. Is there a good place for people to keep up with you and your projects out online? Twitter is probably as good a place as any, which is just John, J-O-N underscore Melville, M-E-L-V-I-L-L-E. And um, I think, well, there's a Facebook page as well, which is, I think it's just forward slash Jonathan Melville. So those are the best places. Well, Jonathan Melville, thank you so much for your time, sir. This is great talking with you as always. Thank you, Mike. Um, I, I've mentioned before, I just, I think this is an amazing podcast. You do an amazing job. So it's, a, it's an absolute pleasure to be on here. Thank you.